It was just so uplifting. It was fun. Colourful. We didn't have much, but we were really happy. One of the best parties of the year. Mate, I was mad excited. <laughs> you had generations coming in at different times. The crowd was going, the vibes was nice, the music was right. Just before six o'clock this morning, the singing and dancing gave way to panic. Children have been burnt. We didn't feel that Britain owned that tragedy. We did not matter. The new crossfire became an us and them affair. It felt because I was born here, I'm not wanted. The black community cannot just stand by and allow this to happen. People started saying, we're gonna have to do something. We had the power and we were able to mobilize. It was one of the proudest moments in our lives. This is the beginning, not the end. A pioneering three-part documentary across three nights, Uprising, starts Tuesday at 9 on BBC One and iPlayer. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Black Women's Hour. Uh, for the past three nights on BBC One, there has been a documentary made by Rogan Productions called Uprising, and it's the story of the new crossfire and the political movement that happened afterwards. Um, I'm here with two people who are on the production team, which is Nelson Adairson. I don't even know if I said, you see, I tried to do the thing and ask them before I <laughs> You didn't commit, you didn't commit, that's why. You fell in between. All I could see is my son's face going, Mom! Mom! Sorry. And uh, Joanna Boateng. See, I got that one right. You did get that one right. (laughs) See? That's how everyone should say it now, because we all learn from the mispronunciation of all. Um, Sorry, guys. Nelson, I will commit to saying, Nelson. See, I thought that was... No you guys want to just say briefly what you did on the show? We'll start with you, Nelson. So, uh, yeah, my name is Nelson, and I was a producer on the show, and I mainly worked on the Brixton side of the show, so the Brixton riots, which was chiefly episode three. Um, I obviously did a bit, a few bits here and there, but mostly um, the Brixton riots were my part of the show. And Joanna? Yeah, I'm Joanna. I'm also a producer, um, and I worked on the New Cross part of the show. Um, so that meant de- dealing with the New Cross uh, research and contributors, and that fell mainly in episodes one and two, and just a little bit at the end of episode three. Well, that's how, like, even hearing that part, we never really went into thinking about the making of it. We never really thought there'd be a Brixton side and then a New Cross side. I mean, let's just start at the beginning. You guys are commenting on how young you are, um, which might translate into I'm getting old because policemen look very young to me these days. But asking you guys, how much did you know about this fire growing up? Like, did you hear about, where are you guys from? First of all, Joanna, are you guys both Londoners? Yeah, so I'm from South London. I grew up in Wandsworth, um, live in Mitcham at the moment. Um, And I knew nothing about the fire at all. When I first heard about the fire, it was doing some research for a company in 2019, and they mentioned it as though I, I should know, and I felt sort of taken aback and a little bit almost ashamed, you know, because I thought that I was someone who, who was kind of across black history and had an interest in it, obviously, but this had completely passed me by. So the first time I found out about it was when I worked on it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Nelson? And likewise, same for me. So I was born in Brixton um, and I grew up in Lewisham. I live in Sydney now. And uh, I just I'd just heard tiny bits, but, you know, it just seemed like an event like many others. I didn't know of the actual fire itself or, in fact, the riots themselves. All that history to me was a bit murky. I sort of heard bits about it, but I just didn't know how terrible it really was and how many people had been affected by it. So it all came as a surprise to me when I actually sort of read up on it for the first time and, and understood how bad it was. So you read up on it to, um, what were your sources for reading up on it when you when you eventually found out? Um, so I suppose there's a lot of source material. We um, chiefly read a lot of books. Uh, one particularly was quite good. That was Uprising by Martin Kettle. That was a really good book for us. And there was also uh, a few papers online. There's a PhD thesis on the entire Charter Neck Tire experience of that year. And just many others, you know, Joanna will probably have a few more. 
that she can uh, sort of speak to? Yeah, I mean, on the on the New Cross side, there was um, the New Cross Massacre, um, a book written by John LaRose, um, and that helps sort of give us an understanding and overview of um, the New Cross Massacre Action Group, Action Committee, and how they, you know, fought for justice on behalf of the survivors and the bereaved families. But but because it hadn't been covered. Um, as extensively as it obviously should have been in the 40 years after it happened, it meant that we had to go back to a lot of uh, sort of source material or primary sources. So it meant looking at the transcripts for the inquest or looking through um, the George Padmore Institute's um, archives to see what was meeting notes that were written of, uh, from the activists and just and then it also it just meant just it was a lot of talking to people because there were huge gaps in the knowledge of um, that underpinned you know the memory of, of and the understanding of New Cross Fire. Yeah, and sort of piggybacking off that, sorry, I think the the key to to the show and um, and just to why it was the way it was was because we just spoke to a lot of people. I mean, untold amounts of people. Yeah. You know, just yeah. over and over again and they were just filling in little bits and then you take that detail and you ask someone else about that detail and they fill in a bit more and this is a story of you know a community so everyone knew about it in their own way and you know even people have watched the film now and have messaged me my cousin was at the riots or my cousin was in the fire or this or that so there's so many people that knew so many bits and I think the key thing about black history is that it's not recorded in the way that it should be so it is a lot of passing down of information or passing across information, which made it, I guess, so hard to really understand and for a lot of people now to know what happened. Yeah, I mean, I had a follower on Twitter who said to me, oh, my brother died in that fire. And I was like, what? Like, you know, obviously it's not something you just throw into a conversation, but, you know, we speak about black history, we speak about stuff that's happened. I mean, I think this is what's so important about the Steve McQueen series, um, every, all the, his, his body of work through Small Acts and through these documentaries as well, is the fact that these things are not documented. Um, do you think it's because there's no interest in TV and, and publishers and radio shows in documenting this history? Or do you think it's because it's too painful? Because a lot of, I mean, this is something that happened in, with black stories throughout time is they are tend they tend to be passed down through generations um for different reasons at different times what do you think the the reasons are with this i think that i think at the crux of it is just a lack of interest in black history it's a kind of there's been obviously throughout history like a like you it's siloed off. It's like thought of as something niche. It's over there. Is there's no complexity complexity to it or any interest in it. And and I think that also stems from, you know, there's a. It's like blackness and black people just being othered. We're not really thought of as citizens of this country or as contributing to this country, and therefore not worthy of our history being documented in the same way. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. yeah. And I and I also think we've internalised that or rather our parents have internalized that to a point of where they all they really wanted to do was to work and to make a better life for a lot of us but their stories they didn't feel like they were worth anything we got through this you're here now you know you make a success of it and a lot of the people that took part in the in the you know the new cross movement and also the brixton riots and the riots all over the country they have kids now and the kids watch the films and thought gosh you were there and they say, yeah, I was. And it's sort of just a side note because, you know, the primary aim at that point was to survive and, and yeah. to make it and to have the kids and then to make a better life for them, whereby actually the story of you as well was important, which I think kind of resonated quite well when the series came out. A hundred, just piggybacking off of that, it's just, it's this kind of like, the, the struggle to just survive in this country and just do what you can and look after your kids and just like eke out like carve out a life for yourself a part of that is almost like just ignoring you know ignoring the racism ignoring how difficult it is and looking back is painful there's a lot of pain there as well so I think it yeah that process of opening up is a difficult one within the community
Everything's gone out. There's no electric. I can't see anybody. I don't know what's going on. And all hell broke loose. People started to panic, right? So even when we get to the window, people are pushing you back. And it's panic. What I, what I remember and what I saw was like watching an old Charlie Chaplin movie, a black and white Charlie Chaplin movie, where, you know, everything looks like it's going in slow motion, but it's going really fast. I mean, I think it's a difference sort of coming from that generation of we're of what called the second generation of um, second generation Caribbeans and stuff like that. So we have like, I mean, to me, it freaks, it freaks me out when I hear like black people and they talk about their mum and dad and then your mum and dad haven't got an accent. That, to me, that's so weird because we just sort of grew up with that. And it's just like. When I say, oh my God, but your mom and dad sound like English. That's so weird. And people are like, my son's like, mom, you sound English. I'm like, oh yeah, oh my God. But it's kind of like, um, I do feel that that was the first generation. We're seeing that with the other documentaries as well of being told to go back to where you come from. And you're like, well, where am I meant to go? Like I was born here. And you kind of have one foot in there and one foot over here and you're kind of displaced in a way. And there was that kind of anger, but I do, kind of agree with what you're saying in terms of our parents generation just wanted to they were promised something that wasn't delivered when they got here basically and they just wanted to get on and to to work and provide for their kids they didn't want any of this kind of trouble so when people sort of who, from older generations spoke to you guys when you're doing your research did they feel how did they feel looking back on it did they feel traumatized did they feel proud of what they've done or did, was it a mixture of both? I mean, I, it was a mixture of both. It was like a really complex mixture of, of both. But it was primarily tra trauma, initially, to be honest, trauma, because for a lot of people, a lot of the elder people that we spoke to, they hadn't spoken about any of this at length at all. A lot of people hadn't spoken about it to their kids. Kids hadn't spoken about it to their parents. So it was a lot of yeah it was it was difficult for them to talk about it and we had to really give them the time to reach a stage where they could could really go deep and uncover stuff that maybe they hadn't really even admitted to themselves or reflected on for decades um but having done that a lot of people then said that it felt like a release you know yeah. being given the space to talk about it but it was it, we, we really did need to give people the time to reach that stage when, when they reach that, especially the elders. Yeah, I can imagine, like, if it's the first time you've been listened to about something, then you're going to need to offload about it, and especially when it's being documented. I just want to know why. Why has my life been curtailed? Why have their lives been cut short? In my own mind, all I wanted answers to was why, how and who and just for someone to say they're sorry. Um, did you guys feel a pressure um, as a team on how you put this together? Because I know with the, um, my friend wrote uh, Lovers Rock and I know there was a lot of pressure and that was a drama, but I know when you're telling these stories and they're being told for the first time, how did you, how, what, was the, what was the atmosphere like on set, both sets? So, um, uh, I also, so I, I've worked on um, the Damalola Taylor film for Channel 4, uh, which came out last year. And um, something that was very, very important to me, and I sort of carry that into this, is that, you know, it's a big responsibility doing something that's really close to home, that essentially could have been your story, which was what Damalola was. So then the, the question always is for me, if I'm not going to do it, who's going to do it? Are they going to do it as well as I'm going to do it? So when I came to this and I thought, okay, I'm once again taking on a load, but a load that is a generation's load and it's a whole community's load. And the, you know, black people's day of action was thousands and thousands and thousands of people from all over the country. And we are going to tell their story and we're gonna to put together the texture and everything. I think you have to use the pressure to your advantage and just use that as motivation to push on everything that you can. You know, in the series, there's nothing accidental. You know, the music, we all put together a playlist of, I don't know, maybe three, 400 songs of the time, you know, and TV shows of the time and 
cultural events of the time and you know we've spoken to so many so many people that if you asked us to make a drama we probably could make a drama so <laughs> yeah. it's one of those things it's it's just you have to use that pressure otherwise it will never get made or it won't get made well so you know it is a pressure and you have to sometimes understand that it will come with criticism but the more you trust yourself and the better you the harder you work and the just better you work together I think the better the show will be you know you can't satisfy anyone and you know we're both quite experienced to know that we're going to we can't tick every box but if we tick enough boxes people will be generally happy to some extent and the contributors are the most important people if you look after them usually what comes out is good yeah definitely black people are a tough audience especially black people are a tough audience even though it wasn't just for us. I know just even doing comedy, you'll just get someone come up, say, you stab it well, no, 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 we do that in St. Lucia as well. It's like, I never said you didn't, just generally. Yeah, but uh, I mean, I agree with you. I noticed the soundtrack. I really noticed it. And I was like, oh, this song, this song, you know? And he was just like, that's what the thing is with these Rogan um, production um, documentaries that they're doing. The attention to detail is absolutely fantastic. It's just like, you know, when Police and Thieves came on and that, you're like, oh, that is exactly the song I need to hear at that time. And you could kind of um, just smell stuff, you know, and, and just the food. And I love the ringing of the doorbell, like you see all the different people coming through. I mean, you just mentioned that you worked on Damilola Taylor. Um, you guys are both, even though fresh faced, very quite experienced in documentary making. Yeah. Um, and Johnny, you worked on the Grenfell documentary as well. I yeah. mean, is this what you guys want to do going for? Just tell truthful stories, or, or are you guys in, interested in making? Sorry, are you guys <laughs> interested in making films about um, sort of tragedies, or do you guys want to make anything else? Or because you are very good at what you do. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, uh, no, not just tragedies. Not, it's more, I'm interested in making stories about black people, about blackness, about what it means to be black or from you know, a marginalized community in the country. Because to be honest, these are the things that affect me as well. And I feel like the best work that I've done has been, all the best research that I've done has come from a place of understanding. Um, but I, I don't, I don't just want to make tragedies because um, I think that, you know, especially with, with being black in this country, being black on this earth, even there are so many complex stories. It's not just, it's not just all about tragedy. It's not just all about sadness. And even within the documentary, there are moments of like light and shade because to deal with the tragedy, you know, we have to, you know, we have to find some sort of happiness, some sort of joy where we can and I want to, I want that to be reflected in the type of work that I do as well yeah yeah and I suppose likewise for me I think um all my all the films I've done have been quite layered so even with um Uprising I feel like tragedy brought everyone together but out of that came a sense of community and a sense of rebellion and a sense of togetherness and that's sort of what I see from it you know I feel like Episode three is sort of that it's the uprising. That is when we said no and we came together. And you know, the the consequence of that and what it meant at the time might have not been the most positive thing, but it meant something. And I think that's really important. And I think in all my work, you know, I've worked on Damalola, but I've also worked on things like Rap Game and a few other things. So I think I just want to present a spectrum of blackness and what that means, you know. And I think currently the struggle we have is when it comes to blackness, it's either tragedy, music, or sports, when actually there's a whole world that can be accessed. You know, we're talking about this is a historical documentary. Currently it's about a tragedy, but actually there's other historical moments that are actually really interesting as well. So yeah, anything like that. And the more diversity we can introduce we can introduce to that sector, the better. Yeah. No, I totally see that. Like I said, it, you could see there was thought put into it, there was heart put into it, there was feeling put into it. Four passed away the night before my birthday. 
the day before my birthday, the nurses actually got him to sit up and semi come round and he wrote my name on a piece of paper and put kisses on it. And then that morning I got a phone call to say to go in. Um, he was really weak. It was about three o'clock in the morning and um, he died about 10 minutes after I got there. And I was 22 years old that day and five months pregnant. Um, as you guys didn't know about it before, um, one thing I found with this whole set of, of Rogan production documentaries is I watch them, they're really good. I enjoy them. I think, yes, 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 and you're nodding at every single little thing, going, oh my God, like it's being said out loud, it's finally being said out loud. And then I kind of feel like, oh, what's changed? I mean, you know, that being, we're coming together and we're speaking about this today. Today is the fourth anniversary of the death of Rashawn Charles um, in, in Dawson. I think it's important to, to mention that because I just feel like, you know, we're talking about things that happen across the pond and stuff and people don't realize how much of it happens here. He was suffocated to death in the very same way that um, George Floyd was. And we're speaking about this documentary. What kind of relevance do you feel it has in 2021? Do you feel, like Linton Kwesi Johnson has said um, in the Black Power documentary that young black people need to watch this, um, watch that Black Power documentary to see what's going on so they can learn from the past and learn what to do in the future. What do you think the relevance is for young people, young black people of today, of uprising? Joanna? Well, I think that, well, it's just like Linton said, like, it's important to have that historical record there for people to access so that they know, they know the history of the community. It's all, you know, we see what's happening across the pond, as you say, and we see, we see what's happening in America, and it's all too easy, I feel, for the establishment here to be like, well, it's really horrible over there, but nothing's happening over here. And I think one way it's these documentaries and, and making these documentaries helps us to arm ourselves. You know, we have this under our belt. We know, we know our history and moving forwards, we know what to say and what to do and how to move when we're faced with this kind of like dismissal of our reality. And for me, it's also helpful to allow us to start to build some sort of ecosystem amongst ourselves. So, you know, a lot of the time we, we sort of have this idea that, you know, we, we need to do something, we need to do something outwardly when actually there's a whole community of us that can be mobilized together. And this documentary like this allows us to band together to see actually when we band together, this is the action that we could make. This is what we could do. This is the power that we had. This is the influence that we had. And actually, that power can be, you know, put together over and over again for whatever we want to influence or or, influ uh, or control or, you know, just in, put some power into the community in, in some way, shape or form. And I think that's very important because, you know, the world is all about money. You know, every community has money. Where is that money being used? Is that used out of the community or within the community? You know, and I think when you watch something like that and, you, and you're mobilised, you think, gosh, Look what happened. Look what we did. Look how we came together. Why can't we do that over and over again for whatever we're trying to achieve, be it even in something like a TV production or otherwise? You know, it, it can work. It, something can happen. And that's my, that's what kind of drives me with all these things I'm making because I know that they're tragic, but in that tragedy, it, the message over and over again is that there's a sense of community that can come together and do something or, or be something or have been something to someone or to many people at any point in time. Yeah, I definitely agree. We had a guest on um, not long ago who was talking about acting locally. Because I was saying, like, it just seems so big all the time that we all these battles seem so huge. And he said, if you act local, it will translate into something global, a little bit like what Marcus Garvey did. Because yeah. if you imagine he had that newspaper going around black the entire world. And this is like pre-internet and stuff like that. So I guess that we haven't got, you know, that many excuses. Well, it's not really so much an excuse, but it's just giving people other reasons. 
So um, what was it to so Sorry? I'll give you just a quick example based on that, you know, myself and Joanna, we had a met before with production and we all came from our own individual careers and someone somewhere would have put it forward. And, you know, two of us being on the production with however the rest of the production team came together was how the film was made, what it was, you know, who knows what would happen if Joanna wasn't there, I wasn't there, someone else wasn't there. So it's just one of those things. You just have to affect one person and they can affect something else and it goes from there. What was the, um, racially, what was the crew like? Was it mostly black people? It was, so the crew on the day of filming was mostly black people. It would be me or Nelson, and then our research in the cow, um, and then, um, DIT, yeah, DIT, Jason, um, and Don, the sound guy, and then James, who's white, and the cameraman, Charlie, who's also white. Yeah. But yeah, on the crew on the day, it was important to make sure that as much as we could, we were creating an environment that A, didn't have that many people because of COVID, but B, that was, you know, had black people there who made the contributors feel comfortable enough to talk about you know, race-based trauma. It was really, really important to us that, you know, visually and, you know, just the environment felt right for them to be able to open up in this way. Yeah. I was just asking because there was some criticism before about one of the job branches and people were saying that the crew weren't black behind the scenes and stuff like that. So people were asking about the diversity all the way through. I mean, yeah. you guys are both uh, quite experienced. You both worked on documentaries before. Did you guys get to meet Steve McQueen or work with him at all? Did you get to meet him? What's he like? Do you want to know what he's like? Because we've he, got this like publicity shot where he looks so serious in it. Yeah. And that's all that we've got. What was it like working with somebody who's, you know, he's just, a, he's groundbreaking in so many ways. Well, uh, do you want to go first, Nelson? What was it like for you to, to meet him and to work with him? So um, meeting Steve and working with him, it, you know, when you're working at the level that Steve has for a long time, you, you, your attention to detail and just your aura about how you approach these things, which is why you make such good things, is, is just so profound. And I think in TV, there's a, there's a sort of fix it as you go along sort of idea and thought process and feeling. And, you know, one of the things that Steve really brought home was that we're going to make this in the best way that it can be made rather than the quickest or the easiest way. And, you know, his questions were just amazing. Each time we'd ask us questions about maybe some research we've done or someone we've spoken to, and the question would completely flip everything that we've thought about on its head. And he would insist that, you know, certain parts of the film had certain things in it. And it had to be like that. And it's just that that polish, that attention to detail, and that, I guess, just, what's the best word? Just the, the aim of it, the ambition of it is so high that, you know, it's, it's a black series that is, people say, one of the best series of the year. And, you know, not only is it black, but it's also amazing, you know, and you don't get those th two things together at the same time a lot of the time. So, yeah, you know, you just, it's just, amazing I think and, uh, you know it's one of the greats yeah. yeah I think he he you know his attention to detail and he you talked you spoke about the pressure earlier on he even at his level was feeling the pressure from the community he was constantly saying like we have to make this the best it can be it has to be beautiful it has to be it has to be comprehensive mm -hmm. because that's what we owe to the community the community needs this and the community is owed this and we've been given this opportunity to do this and he's also, he's, because like Nelson was saying, he's been operating at that level for such a long time. It's almost instinctual for him, you know, like he, he would come up with an idea or a sort of a kind of a way to change the way that we would interview someone that would just, you know, open our eyes to a different way of working. Um, and he's, he's very um, empathetic as well, which, which helped with something like this. A deeply empathetic person. Yes. Definitely cared. Yeah, a lot. Does he have any weird habits? <laughs> <laughs> I 
<laughs> not that I know of. <laughs> if he does, he's been hiding it. <laughs> so how did you guys, did this feel like more like um, a Caribbean story? Because obviously you guys, I'm guessing, Johnny, you're from a uh, Ghanaian background and you know from some um, Nigerian background. Yeah. Did this feel like more, because we didn't really have, the two communities weren't with at the time, or African people tended to come later. Yeah, yeah. So, Caribbean uh, story, or did you feel any difference at all? Did you just feel it was black? No, I think it is a Caribbean story. I think it's a, it's a. You have to take note that it is, and actually, that's one of the things I was really thinking about when talking about my side of the story, because a lot of them were a lot of people I spoke to. The the Caribbeanness of Brixton is a massive thing. You know, it's a huge, huge thing. And I think as a producer or as anyone working in TV, actually, I think the key skill is listening and listening just beyond, you know, they're answering the question, but actually listening to their experience. So I try to withhold my experience as much as possible. So what I might consider black might be African or Nigerian or from Brixton or from Lewisham. So the key thing, and also I think that's why James, one of our co-directors is really, really great because his background is so distinct to everything that's happened. But actually the key thing is you listen and you don't just pick up on what they do say, but also what they don't say. So, and also you investigate everything. So, you know, you spoke about the, the series feeling very culturally relevant in terms of what they smell. We actually asked the question, when you come out of the Brixton station, what do you smell? What's to your left and to your right? And you don't ask those questions if you don't think about, you know, I've been to Brixton, I was born in Brixton. I know what's left and right. You know, when I was there, the foot locker was on the right and the market was on the left next to the Iceland. But actually that's just my experience. So I need to take that away and I ask the experience of the people that I'm interested in and that's, the way to, I think, that's the way that it came across without having, they're going to have our hand over it, where the producers and where the directors or whatever, and we are going to decide what goes and what doesn't. But if you can remove that and sort of just let the, their words fill the space, I think you can let that story breathe a lot more. And yeah, it is a Caribbean story. It's not just, it's not an African story at all because we came much later. And by that time, you know, we're talking about second generation first generation by the time I my parents came in it was probably the third generation or at least going from the second to the third so it's a completely different experience that I can't grasp but it's really interesting to even watch you know wow before I even got here this all was happening so it wasn't it was even worse than when I was growing up which I thought was bad already so you know you just have to be a listener and obviously I'm speaking a lot sorry but I wonder what Joanna would have to say to that as well yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. It was about, it was very much a Caribbean story. Um, and it was, we, we had to work to not, like Nelson was saying, impose our own views and our own experiences on what we thought had happened. So it was really about setting that, like us aside and just, again, like making a space for people to talk and really picking up on the details as well being really meticulous about what people said and making sure that that was fed back to the rest of the production, you know, sights, smells, experiences, sounds, food, anything that people mentioned, we, we picked up on it and we really sort of spoke about it. Yeah, it, was, it, it, it wasn't just, it wasn't a black story, it was a Caribbean story and we really worked hard to make sure that that came across. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that, I don't know, what do I know? There's much difference now. Like I said, my son's half Caribbean, half Nigerian. I just don't see, when I see him and his friends, I don't see there being that much difference. But I do know when I, I mean, I was born in, in Balham and lived in Brixton um, for the first couple of months of my life. And then I walked out, I was born. And I went to countryside, but I was like, um, so, but I, so I kind of, but I had cousins who stayed. Like, I used to go and stay with my cousins in Mitcham all the time, or I'd go and stay with my cousins in Hackney all the time, and stuff like that. So it was kind of, is my heritage, but not my upbringing. Um, so, I mean, I kind of feel that I've learned quite a lot. Did you guys have any preconceived ideas what it was like for Caribbeans prior to you guys coming? 
belong to this project? Um, I don't know that. I don't know that anything that I thought was sort of um, disproved or anything, but it was more like there was more detail added to what, to how I thought. To there was more detail added to how difficult I thought it was. So I didn't know, you know, that, and I, I knew it was racist, but I didn't know that boys walking home at night couldn't go down certain roads because they could actually die. I didn't know that they were picked off the street and beaten up by police just for being there. I, you know, I assumed that it was bad, but I didn't have any details at all. I didn't have any of those stories. I think for me, you know, what really sort of hit home was just the stop and search thing because, you know, mm. I've been stopped and searched, you know, God knows how many times there's all oh, the whole shebang, I've, you know, I've had it, I've seen it, all of that. But for me, it was just the realisation that I actually had it better. <laughs> I had it better than the people in that time. And, you know, that made me really sad because not only was there a lack of opportunity then, there was also just more, more to deal with. So in my head, I sort of think, the fact that you guys are alive and functioning is a testament to your strength. You know, you've made it to 40, 50 to tell your story. That alone, talk to us of whether you're successful in the workplace, whether you resorted to crime or not, you know. To tell the truth, if Nelson was born in 1981, would he be alive? I can't tell you, to be honest. Oh. That's the truth, so. I yeah. mean, I wouldn't say that you guys have it easier. This is what I kind of feel, um, like I said, I didn't grow up in London and stuff, so I don't have that first kind of experience other people would have had, like my cousins mm. would have. Um, but I don't know that, I'm not sure you guys have it easier. I mean, I do something with this stop and search legal project on a patron affairs, and it just makes me sick, you know, and just having to keep explaining to people. So it's interesting that you think life's got easier. Well, specifically to stop and search, you know, there's forms now. That's the thing, you know, there's forms and there's there's legalities around it that you, you have a voice. I'm not saying things don't happen. I'm not saying people don't die, but I'm saying in those times, you know, we're talking about people that were routinely violently assaulted almost every time and the stop and search for just that many more times. So you had just that many more encounters with them and more stuff happened. So I'm not saying it's brilliant, but I'm just saying it was just worse. <laughs> Yeah, it just felt worse from what I understand. I mean, I've never been stopped and searched. Like, I go and speak to kids about it in schools and community centers, and we teach them their legal rights. I've never been stopped and searched, so I can only just say, I don't know, I hate that thing. Stop and search really gets me so mad. So, yeah, I feel like there's a difference in like stop and search was, um, you know, sus back then, it's, it's stop and search now. Um, ESN schools existed back then, now we have, you know, SEN. It's all the same thing, but under a different name and maybe like more levels of bureaucracy, but it's still, it, it's just, it's there, but just transformed. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like it's not changed a great deal. Mm -hmm. I think it's more insidious. I think mm. for me personally, I just feel like they learn from their mistakes and they correct mm. them them a bit slyer and a bit nastier the next time. Yeah, I mean, yeah. taken out and put into boarding school as well, so I didn't have that whole SEN thing. I learned about that later, taking my son to 100 Black Men of London, and they would have like a parents' class and a, a kids' class, and this guy came in and he was talking about, this is where I learned about the whole, all these Black children being put into to special needs schools and then putting into the lower streams and stuff. I didn't have to face any of that, so it was new to me. Mm -hmm. And I learned about that back in 2013. So when the, the documentary came along, I don't know. I just think, um, I think what you guys do is amazing anyway. I wouldn't say you guys have it easy at all. I yeah. think you, still, you have to just navigate around different things. It's like, um, I think as you, Nelson, had mentioned earlier, even in this, in telling black stories, they want music, they want sport, they want entertainment, really. Or they want something sort of scandalous. Do you know what I mean? And so, yeah, I think what you guys do is really, really incredible. Um, we did have a couple of questions, actually, from people. There was an interesting question that came through on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And Ava can find the app. 
I've got it, don't worry. I don't know why my son's voice is running through my head. As I was trying to find this app, all I could hear in my head was, you're so embarrassing! <laughs> Sorry. How old is your son? <laughs> this month, in a few days, like it's just everything I do, technologically, everything I do is wrong. Sorry, it's playing in my mind a lot. Um, so somebody had asked this question. I was, uh, this is from Barry Shapiro, who follows us on Twitter. Thank you, Barry. Um, he said, I was curious at the choice of witnesses and whether they missed out on any big ones. The first part of his question. Was there any witnesses he wanted you couldn't get or? So witnesses to the new crossfire or in yeah. general? I think in general, really. I think for both sides of it, to, to what happened in the riots and to what happened with the fire. Yeah, yeah. There were some people that I would have love to get in um who for for several reasons weren't able to do it or didn't feel you know that they they didn't want their contribution to be something that was on screen but helped heavily with the research um and yeah because it was like dozens of people who were really badly injured and obviously on top of the 14 who eventually lost their lives so there were so many stories there that we uncovered so many people that we spoke to and therefore so many different ways that we could have gone through that narrative. And yeah, I, there are loads of people that I wish made it in, but they they helped with the research that was building up to it instead. So was the main reason that they didn't take part, was it because um, they didn't feel they wanted to be on camera? Or? Some people felt that they didn't want to be on camera. They wanted to talk to me and sort of listen to me, my, you know, the research we were doing talk to me and Nelson over a period of months. Other people, um, other people couldn't, you know, be because we did film it during lockdown, it was really difficult health-wise and just logistically to, to get them there. Um, and, and then there were other people who, um, yeah, you, they, yeah, it's just that the thought of being on camera was, and talking about this specifically was too traumatic. So they hadn't personally reached a stage where they could, you know, talk about it at length without just completely breaking down. So, so they would help in other ways with like giving us photos, you know, or, or introducing us to other people who they felt we needed to talk to. That's incredible. Like after all this time, they still can't even talk about it. Just yeah. how painful it all was. What about on the Brixton side? Nelson? On the Brixton side was um, also quite complicated because it was very multifaceted. Um, we obviously had a lot of police that we, you know, there was so many troops of police at the Brixton riots. And we ended up speaking to quite a lot of policemen. And I, and I think the problem with police as a whole, when you're dealing with them, number one, if they're still in service, the Metropolitan Police has to give them permission to take part in the programme. Now, that in itself is quite difficult because it depends on what, you know, you have to offer you know, what are you, what is the story about? What are they going to say? And it just gets very, very sensitive. And then there's also just the idea of some of the police officers that took part would have been 17, 18, 19, 20, you know, really, really young. And their actions, some of them were, you know, not good, essentially, you know, they, they have done things that they have regretted or things happened that they regretted or they were in a force that, you know, we can almost evidently say is racist. So, you know, some of them just feel they went along with the ride and now 40 years on, it's almost like, gosh, you know, I'm part of the rotten apple. And then there's also the other side, people who feel like they just, they just feel like they, 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 they won't be making too many excuses. So they're very worried about how they're gonna come across. So all of those things meant that a huge, amount of people we spoke to on the police side were very, very difficult to get into the film. And then just in general, like Joanna said, just the idea of being on camera for some people is quite difficult as well, which is understandable, you know. You're put out on camera and it goes to the world. So they as well assisted, as well as some of the policemen, assisted us with research and, you know, pointing them in the right direction. And a lot of the people we spoke to were very, very helpful. So, you know, I wouldn't stand here and say, you know, I, I, you know, anyone should feel bad for saying no to us, you know, it's their decision and 
you know, everyone contributed to making this project what it was. So yeah, I mean, it could have been a thousand different types of film, you know, it could have yeah. been this film or that film. And, you know, there's so many sub stories behind it that we might have touched on in one little minute that actually has a full film on it by itself. So, you know, I don't really worry about that because I think the film was made in the way that it was made and it's good. Yeah. So if it was a different film, would it have been as good? No one knows, and but we can't speculate on that. Let's just enjoy what we have in front of us. And if more details come and newspapers write about other things and people do interviews, that is all the domino effect from the film being out in the way that it is. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting what you said about the police because the next one, um, his next question was, why did the police chosen seem so random? So I think we kind of got the answer to that. Is that they could yeah, but I, I think actually that that is that is a bit of a disservice to the policemen that took part, you know. Um, I think they all represented different parts of the service, you know, and for example, someone like Peter Blexley, who in himself admitted on camera what the force was, you know, that is essentially someone coming and saying they took part in something that was horrendous. And I think that in itself, you know, you have to give it plaudits because not many people can, can do that. You know, and you know George Roden, black police officer, he knows what the police force was like in that time. Yet he still joined them, and he was called a Judas and attacked by his own people. That also represents, you know, and that's all about layers of the film and layers of of life. And and actually, it's not as simple as yes or no. It's lives, and they change, and they evolve, and culture evolves, and you know all these things. So, and then Stephen Margiotta, who was junior at the time and was to some extent oblivious of just the depths of what happened, you know, to him ultimately. And I think they represent the force. We can't put 30 policemen into the film. We yeah. can only put a selection of them. And, and those guys really sort of stood out and stood up and said they were happy to tell their story and their views and their opinions. And I think, you know, like I said, the film could have been cut 20 different ways was cut this one way and they made it so what they had to say was evidently very important mm. there was also an issue with just the age you know it happened 40 years ago so the more senior police officers have either died or are very very elderly so that posed an issue as well because you know there, there were some police officers who had dementia there were others who were really you know really ill so we just we just couldn't we just couldn't film them yeah, yeah. I think Peter Blexley said something like he didn't join the force as a racist, but he became one. For many black boys at that time, we were trying to find where are we going to fit in? And that's the reason why Brixton became so prominent to us, because we fit into Brixton, the whole thinking of Jamaican life. We spotted a Victorian townhouse in Mail Road, which is parallel with Relton Road. When we moved there, Brixton was a poor neighborhood, it was a rundown neighborhood, it was an immigrant neighborhood. In my social life, if I said I lived in Brixton, there'd be eyebrows raised. <laughs> but um, even during that show that was happening, do you know he was getting abuse on Twitter? Like from, did, that was just, he was just telling his story. So yeah, I can totally understand why some people might not have wanted him to come on camera. But he wasn't yeah. getting, I mean, he was getting abuse from white people, is what I meant. Really? Yeah, that's what I meant, yeah. I wasn't aware. Yeah, they were throughout the programme because we'd sort of, um, we'd done a, like a thread on it and stuff and people were copying us into it and people were saying that they had a lot of respect for him, but he was getting abused as the show was going out, being called a traitor, you know, race beta, all that kind of stuff that you get called. Um, somebody said, um, I love Linton Kwesi Johnson and Steel Pulse. And I was happy for them to represent, but I don't know whether they were symbolic of the times or was there a closer association than that? Um, so I, I spoke to both of them, actually. Um, I think Michael Riley was at the People's Day of Action and he did the Rock Against Racism concert. So, you know, there was a lot of music there at the time, you know, by various different people. But these people also were there for very vital moments in our in our story. And as I said before, 
you know, it's really hard to pick who goes into the film. You know, some people didn't make it at all in the film. So I think what they provided us alongside of, you know, their music, musical escapades and their music that they produced was also the fact that they could speak to the time and what made them become who they were. So both of them were inspired by the culture that they lived in to make the music they made. And they were also present at various points in the story. And that's also one of the reasons why they made it in. Uh, you know, it's really difficult. And like I said, you know, this shouldn't be as much as it's a seminal piece about the time, it's not an exhaustive piece, you know, and hopefully this makes people speak to their parents or speak to people they know or read books or find whatever they can find and read up on it because the black community is so small. You know someone who knows someone who was there, you know. When I said someone I'm making a film about it, they said my uncle was there, I'm gonna call him. And he called him and said, oh, he's not up for it. But he would watch the film now and they might have a chat and, you know, some more stuff might come to light. So I think, you know, people have to remember it's only three hours of something that was, you know, it's still going on for 40 years. So actually, we can only do so much. We can only inspire and hopefully tell something that's accurate to and correct to an extent because it's bigger than the three hours we had on screen. Yeah. Joanna, do you have anything to add there? Um, yeah, I mean, just that, you know, in terms of uh, Linton Cressy Johnson's involvement, he was part of the New Cross Massacre Action Committee. So he was really heavily involved in the sort of activism and, and grassroots organisation and community action that occurred immediately after the fire. He was really there with Race Today as well. And, and as Nelson said, was there at really important moments within you know, within that story. So he was able to, to give us a really accurate and really emotional account of what was happening, you know, as they were getting ready for the Black People's Day of Action or as they were, you know, marching to Parliament or uh, setting up community meetings, like weekly community meetings or, or meeting um, families who were grieving. He, he was there. Yeah. yeah. I think it kind of leads on to another question that we had. Um, because I think people not realizing these things didn't exist in a vacuum. So someone's asked like, one question I had was whether the incidents in Brixton were separate from those that are well known that were triggered by the shooting of Cherry Gross, which wasn't mentioned in the program at all. Because that was many years later, actually. Yeah, was that, that was 85. 85, yeah. Cherry Gross, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's, um, like you said, I mean, you saw the People's Day of Action and stuff, and you saw Dark as Howe there giving a speech. So activists like Linton Kwesi Johnson and Dark as Howe would have been around in, do you know what I mean? And then you also saw um, the Southall riots happened, you know, at a similar time. And that was when the Asian community had had it. And then, you yeah. know, you had the killing of Blair Peach and stuff like that. So I think there were just so many firecrackers going off at the same time yeah. that people, I, I totally understand. You've got to kind of focus on one, haven't you? You can't really tell all these different stories and put it into a coherent... Um, we had we so many conversations about, about when the chronological, you know, when we would start. Would we start in 1977? Is it going to start in 1981? Are we going to go all the way to 2004 or are we just going to stick to the 80s? It was because each decision that we made in terms of the timeline had a, would have a significant impact on the way it would be received. But but ultimately it made the most sense to stick to those five years because it was so dense, you know, there's so much information and so much that happened within those within that time. Yeah. Just a couple of comments. Um, Nishat Siddiqui said, I love the series. I found the interviews with those who were there extremely moving. Somebody else, Vicky Smith wrote, um, I thought it was a powerful, moving series Please um, commend all the survivors and their families for reliving the sheer horror. It was so moving and also so inspiring. Um, other people just put in comments that they had been around at the time and everything was brought back to them. So it was done really well. Um, so just to pass those compliments on to you guys. Uh, the last thing, because we're nearly finished now, um, what are you? What next for you guys? What are you working on next, Joanna? 
Um, I so I took a very long break <laughs> after filming, um, but I'm working on a, a drama, actually a drama development. I'm not sure how much I can say just yet. Um, oh, but, yeah. Yeah, it's a sort of it's 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 weird. It's like it's a drama that's based on a on a factual event. So in the development phase, it's actually very similar to developing a documentary because again, you're looking at a factual event. So I also like to keep it to switch up a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. And Nelson, you've got your own production company, haven't you? It's yeah. Boy Wonder um, Films, yeah. It's for what though? Boy Wonder Films. Boy Wonder Films, that's it. Yeah. So we've got our first. Uh, it's an iPlayer short coming out next month. It's called uh, Welcome to Hackney with Ivorian Doll. So that, yeah, we completed that not long ago and should be out in September. And then currently I'm working on the BBC Two series. Um, it's a com not a competition format, but it's more lighthearted. Um, it's finding older people and putting them together in a band to perform and gig all around the country. So, you know, we kind of switched it up. Yeah, you have to. You have to. <laughs> you know, just try to sort of do the different, yeah. which... Yeah. How did you guys take care of yourselves during this whole... Um, project by the way it's just must be heavy um, guys too it's very heavy it's really heavy and I I've done so like with Grenfell and um, Nail Bomber as well um, it's all it's a lot of talking to people about trauma that they may not have processed as well which leaves you really open to being you know uh, traumatized vicariously as well so I was and always have been very open about looking after my mental health and about uh, and the team are also really good about giving us um mental health support if we needed it and also giving it to the contributors as well and they were constantly sort of asking us really frankly are you okay you know if you need to debrief after a particularly difficult conversation we are here and that's something that we took full advantage of um and it was you know the way that i looked after myself was making sure that i knew that i was in a supportive team and i knew what practical things they could give me when I needed it, because I knew I would need it, because it was hard. Yeah. yeah. What about you, Nelson? What did you do? I think the key for me, um, like Joanna said, you know, completely rightly about the team being supportive and sort of speaking to them. But I think for me also, it's just, you know, giving yourself a little break sometimes um, and just knowing that you kind of reach your capacity for those tough conversations. You know, at any point, at any point in time, you might have been speaking to five, six, seven people a day and everything was tragedy, tragedy, tragedy. So, you know, after a while, you don't notice it, but you start to sort of feel a bit negative and, you know, sort of feel a bit hopeless sometimes. And that's when you need to know that, you know, maybe to do something else so you you know you take a break or you just relax a bit and you know you, you just just make sure you don't internalize it and you know for me personally that's sort of why I've just taken a big break now from quite heavy subjects um and and just want to laugh a little bit just to find some positivity again uh, uh, but but I feel so fulfilled by how people received it even that's positive for me you know and that is helping to unwind all that pain that I felt and I saw and I experienced to just say, you know what, it was worth it. So that sort of gives me an impetus for the next time, maybe a series like this has to be done or, you know, whatever that might be. And I think that's it, you know, I kept my eye on the prize a lot of the time. And all the people we spoke to, they are leading fulfilling lives and they're happy in some way, shape or form. So that was very important for me in the series that we do bring that across that, you know, despite all this, you know, our community is vibrant, it's fun, it's happy. And I always look back at that, you know, like I said, we listened to the music. There was a day I just spent the whole day listening to music and that was happy. And, you know, I always delved into those parts that were quite fun and interesting and, and that I wanted to learn about. So I think that also helped me along, you know, cause it wasn't, it's, it is a tragedy but it's not just about that, you know? And I think those layers to me are very, very important. I don't think, I don't feel like I made, you know, a, a true crime series. I feel like I made a series about social history that they needed to know. 
I agree. And um, that's the perfect place to leave it. I'm just going to say goodbye to the audience. Um, thanks for joining us for another Black Woman's Hour. And we will be back shortly with who I don't know, with what I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to be speaking about because I haven't organized anything yet. Because that's how I roll. Bye, audience. Thank you.